The topic of artificial intelligence, the ethics of artificial intelligence, is a very complex set of issues. And it's a set of issues that is going to become of great, great importance during the upcoming year. I'm Michael Craigsman. I'm an industry analyst, and welcome to episode number 318 of CXO Talk. We have two extraordinary guests. Before I introduce them, please, right this second, I need you to subscribe on YouTube. I'll ask each of our guests to introduce themselves, and let's start with Dr. Eric Rasmussen. Eric, how are you? And this is your first time on CXO Talk, and welcome. This is my first time on CXO Talk, and I appreciate the invitation. Thank you very much. Um, I'm a physician. Um, originally, I spent 25 years as a Navy officer, um, and my undergraduate medical degrees are from Stanford, where I did a fair amount of work with Summit, the Stanford University Multimedia Medical Information Technologies Group, which was an early um, expert system slash AI understanding of what might be possible. And I've continued to work in technology. I did nine years at DARPA. Um, I went to lead the Google um, award of a TED Prize to Larry Brilliant um, that uh, turned out to be mostly around software-driven uh, detection and better understanding of uh, outbreaks for diseases. And when I left that and became the chair of the board, I started doing a fair amount of work in humanitarian sciences um, around the world for various governments. And I'm on the faculty at Singularity University, where I have an opportunity to look at what's coming and how it, uh, I can apply it in the work that I do around the world. Okay. Uh, that is some background. Uh, extraordinary. And our second guest is a good friend of CXO Talk and somebody who's been on the show a number of times, David Bray, uh, who is the executive director of People-Centered Internet. Hey, David, how are you? And uh, welcome back. Doing great, Michael. And thanks for having me again. And really glad to join Eric. Uh, I think we've actually, we, we interacted back in the early 2000s when he was doing the work that he was doing with DARPA and then later and additionally instead, and I was with the Centers for Disease Control. And since then we've uh, reconnected both with Singularity University, where he mentioned he's on faculty, I'm on faculty as well. And he's also on the board for the People Center Internet Coalition as well. Okay, fantastic. So let's start with when we talk about AI ethics, what are we actually referring to and why should we care? And I'll let either one of you uh, jump in and take a stab at this one. Um, I'll take that for the moment um, because I'm more an interested user than a specialist. Um, and there's a real distinction there. There is a need for an understanding of how these capabilities are going to arise and how they will shape the world that we're entering, whether it is in education or autonomous vehicles or online presence uh, or data harvesting. The number of things that might go wrong if we don't look at a commonsensical structure that can walk across cultural boundaries, across political boundaries. Um, there are a number of things to think about in how we might want to implement the tools that are coming down the road very quickly. So it's worth discussion. And to amplify what Eric said, you know, we humans have been using tools to either extend our abilities physically or cognitively for centuries, if not thousands of years. I mean, that's what we do. We are tool users. However, the very nature of the tool, it's how we choose how to use it that decides whether it's good versus bad and its impacts on communities and societies. 
And so when we're thinking about ethics associated with machine learning, with artificial intelligence, with giving either semi-autonomy or autonomy to machines, it's a question of both, can we trust that how the machine was designed lends itself to being more used as a force for good versus the alternative? And then two, if the machine is given semi-autonomy or eventually autonomy, can we trust that it will make choices consistent with the ethical values we have for different societies? And as Eric said, I mean, you've had more than 3,000 years of human philosophy. We still haven't been able to find a common thread across human cultures that everyone can agree upon. Um, so can we find a way to do that in the next few years for AI that's going to be codified increasingly into systems around the world? And that's, uh, if I can pile on just for a moment, that's certainly true around concepts of fairness, concepts of trust. These are becoming fundamental to the way that we think about what's developing. It's fun, actually, to think about the fact that we might have an opportunity to revisit these 2,000-year-old questions in ways that set standards that might actually minimize bias. But right now, almost everything that we're doing has some implicit bias, and it's often very subtle. We need better understanding of how to spot it and what we want to do about it. I'd like to come back in a minute to this issue of bias, Eric, that you just raised. But David raised a, a point earlier. He said that in 3,000 years, we haven't overcome these ethical issues, but we need to do so in the next few years. That seems like a losing proposition to me. Well, I would actually say, you know, in some respects, it's not until the crisis hits that eventually humanity figures out how to make it work. Uh, and we, we, we are great under pressure, usually. Uh, and it, it's, the, it's the make or break moment. So maybe, you know, and, and I think it was in, in what Eric just said, maybe now this gives us a chance to revisit it. And it's no longer just an academic exercise. This is now essential to the future of work, to the future of communities, to the futures of society, that we work to find them. And and there, there have been some that have suggested, and actually I support this idea that maybe at least at, at the very minimum, one should at least subscribe to whether you believe it's Kant's categorical imperative, that whatever you do, do it in a way that you're okay with it being done universally by others. Other faiths have said it's, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Maybe something like that can be a building block that says, what would be the things that we would be comfortable both having been done to us and us doing with machines, with AI, in a way that is universally done by everybody. It's, it's interesting to recognize that Marshall McLuhan talked about the media being the message, and now we have a variety of media undreamt of previously, giving voice to the voiceless in many ways that has been hugely beneficial. But on the other hand, the algorithms that are driving AI are being written by humans, and the humans might be having a bad day. There might be something that is quite subtle that doesn't manifest itself until well into an adoption of that AI process. And those tools may get embedded in society in ways that are quite unconstructive. Eric, you brought up this issue of implicit bias. So I think this is a, a really important one. So, let, so let me ask you, what is implicit bias when it comes to AI and AI data sets, number one? And then let's move into the connection that David had raised earlier between all of this and the future of work? Sure. Um, that's, a, that's a complex thread, but let's tug on it for a little bit. Um, we have very good studies that indicate that when there is a, a gender 
balance um, in participation in meetings, some things change. When there is not gender balance or when there is a subjugation of a point of view, what comes out of the meeting has a bias toward that particular power structure. Um, there's no surprise there. But when you have tools that are being developed that are going to be asked to make decisions that are going to be affecting individual humans or the data around individual humans and how that data is used or the way that a machine behaves in relation to a human, how those things are being written must be evaluated with the recognition that virtually everybody has some bias towards something and whatever they're doing. And if that happens to be writing code and happens to be writing algorithms that will eventually control machines, that bias has to be understood whether we act on it or not, it has to be understood. And to amplify what Eric is saying, let's assume for a moment that just somehow you had an algorithm that, and in fact, it may be possible to have an algorithm that itself is purely mathematical, but the data you choose to expose the algorithm to as the machine teaches itself, as it learns, that data we have to recognize that we humans, again, our societies are right now imperfect. Um, if you try to do autocomplete for certain professions right now on your on any popular search engine, when you start doing autocomplete for, like, say, doctors, fire, fire people, firemen, even then it begins to show that there are biases associated with certain languages in terms of ascribing a he versus she to that to that profession. And so that data is then being fed to an algorithm. The algorithm itself is just mathematics, but what the algorithm starts to learn from is biased. You have you, you, you bake in that bias, unfortunately, and carry it into society. To make it even more real, we already know there are certain facial recognition algorithms that cannot recognize certain minority groups because, unfortunately, when the machine has been trained, they haven't been as represented when the machine was being trained, and so it can't recognize them, which is not right and is not fair. And it does seem that the argument about how that training takes place and what tools we use mathematically, whether we need to have a very, very large set of data in order to give the machine an understanding of what it's talking about, that may not be the only way. There are other methods, mathematically and computationally, that might allow a bit more common sense than is currently present with massive data sets looking for patterns. Are data sets the key to, uh, I was going to say, towards the ethical use of AI, or are there other aspects to this as well, such as how we use the results of AI computations? Let's first tease out ethics and morality. So ethics is what society or a field or a profession view is the correct and good thing to do. For example, in a lot of places, and I'm sure Eric has a view, in a lot of places in the medical field, it is not right for a doctor to ethically support a patient's wish to die, even if they have end-stage cancer. That ethically is the case, but it may very well be that the physician may morally feel like, yes, if you have end-stage cancer, that that might be the right thing. And so we separate morals, which is your own internal locus of what you think is right and wrong, versus ethics, which is what society thinks is right and wrong. I don't think that data sets by themselves will be our saving grace. I think that's putting faith in a false panacea. What we really need, though, is, is more groups, whether they be within organizations or they involve the stakeholders or customers 
in that organization or involved with that organization to look at both the data that's coming in and, be, and then how it's being used. Is it representative? Is it fair? And then two, are the conclusions the machine reaching, does that make sense? Um, you know, if it comes and says that certain groups should receive more favorable tax credits or more favorable interest rates, you know, if it's splitting across racial lines or gender lines, we'd probably say that's not right, at least in the United States, we'd say that's not right. But that's something that the data set won't be able to decide. It's something that we humans ethically, when we say that's not right, we'll need to decide. The other thing, though, I think we need to think about is how do we how do we come to a sense that just because the data may show a pattern, that might not be right. Let me put this in real context. I personally am against profiling, even if the data shows that maybe a certain group is more at risk of doing something or not, because in the United States, we believe in the idea that you, you should have due process and you should be considered innocent until proven guilty. And so just because the data may show there's a greater tendency, that doesn't mean we should describe that to the person until their behaviors have actually presented itself. To make that even more real, sometimes you may find patterns in the data only because you've been looking intensely in certain areas. Eric knows this from public health as well. It may be that simply just because you find flu or some prevalence of an infectious disease in some part of the United States doesn't mean it's not also in another part of the United States. It might just be you're not collecting it or you're not sensitive enough to pick it up over there. So we have to recognize that data itself can be flawed. The conclusions we can reach from that data set can be flawed. And even if it shows an accurate pattern, we as humans may not find it ethical to accept that as something we apply universally. I completely agree. And one of the things that we've noticed in epidemiology is the dog that did not bark in the night, right? When you don't have the information coming in from an area that you think you should have, that may well mean, and it's kind of trivial to note, but it will mean that they're really, really broken. I lead a disaster response team the Roddenberry Foundation. And we wind up looking at where people need water um, in ways that are not conventional because the reasons people need water are complicated after a disaster. And it may be challenging to use conventional data sets or conventional surveillance to spot what is actually obvious to the population affected and really difficult to pull out from elsewhere. I want to remind everybody that you are watching CXO Talk, and right now there is a tweet chat taking place using the hashtag CXO Talk, and you can ask our guests questions and we'll respond right now. So please join in. We have two amazing guests. Okay, now let's, we could continue going on with this for a long time because these are very thorny issues. What does all of this, this AI ethics and data sets and all this stuff have to do with the future of work at all? Well, I think it gets to both the challenge that there's a massive amount of data being produced. Uh, some say that by 2022, just four years from now, there will be more data on the planet than all human eyes see in the course of a year or twice all the conversations we've ever had as a species. It's essentially 96 billion terabytes of data or more. So. We know that the idea of right now where you go and you actually type in keywords to find what you're looking for will not scale just four years from now. And so the machines are going to have to be aware of what you're doing, the context in what you're doing, and may even have to nudge you and say, I see you're working on this particular type of problem. Would this data be useful? And either you use the data or you're not, you begin to teach the machine, and the machine learns how to help you deal with this massive amount of data that we're all drowning in. The challenge, though, is 
that means you're being watched at in the, in the workplace. It's, it's essentially, in some respects, some surveillance to some degree, which is already happening with some of the apps that are on people's phones that make things convenient for you, that make things easy to access. But the false conclusions that might be reached, it might reach the conclusion that Eric's more productive than I am based on a certain set of presentations. But is that a real conclusion or is that something that's just spurious in the data? And how does it affect both our promotion through the ranks, our salary, and how we're valued? I think there's a lot of questions about as machines are paired with humans, how do you make sure they're being done to amplify all human abilities and are not unfairly either advantaging a select group over another or disadvantaging a select group? Eric, what, what David just said strikes me as no different than, you know, idealistic thinking that has occurred at any point in history. And so this whole topic, isn't it kind of irrelevant in a way? It's just like, okay, it's, this is business as usual, as usual with the human condition. And why are we wasting our time with any of it? Oh, you are such a challenging man. Um, <laughs> no, the, uh, it is not irrelevant. This is the kind of thing that we've wrestled with. And for the first time, we have some tools that might give us some objectivity in the kind of things that we have always wanted to know more about. Um, let's, so David mentioned the fact that we're fundamentally under surveillance to one degree or another um, by the very nature of the motions we take through the day whether it's closer-circuit TV cameras or what we click on on Amazon or what we look at um, as our daily news feed, um, that is being tracked. Now, the advantage there, there are disadvantages, but the advantage there is that when you are recognized as a unique individual through the pattern that you develop through life, a data pattern, an associative pattern, you have the ability to be understood better than perhaps you ever have before. Is that worthwhile? Possibly in, in many cases. Um, one of those cases, for example, might be education. If we had the ability to tailor educational understanding to the kind of thing that can be most beneficial to that particular student, that's really something that can help leap forward many of the, not to make the Chinese reference, um, not uh, to to not leave people behind that otherwise had not been recognized in how they develop their strengths best. That's being done in China, which is why I, I mentioned the leap forward. Um, there are companies in China that are harvesting a lot of weak signals, weak um, features in how data is being analyzed for patterns. Strong features are obvious, right? These are the kind of things that every teacher would be looking for all the time. But there are weak features in associated pattern extraction that can lead to much better tailoring in education. The same thing is true, is true in many other sectors. And then we can get into the future of work and why it's both a positive, a neutral, um, and possibly a negative um, as we look at what's developing in AI across multiple sectors. But I'll stop for a second. Uh, okay, we, we have a, a few questions from Twitter, and I know I asked for questions and we'll take your questions, but actually, you know, I want to ask my own questions here. I don't want to take questions from you guys, but, uh, but because, of, because I'm a good host and not an evil host. <laughs> Let's take some questions from, from Twitter. So a uh, good one from Arsalan Khan, who says, who should be responsible for ethics 
and then profitability and economic growth when it comes to AI? Ooh, uh, I would say don't pin your hopes on any one person or group. We are the Calvary. And so if you feel like this is something you're interested in, you need to figure out your role in contributing and how you can interact with everyone. I'd make the slight pitch for the people Center and internet as one, but there's many other places too. I don't think we can say there's any one group or one sector that has responsibilities. And I think that's part of the frustration we see right now is people trying to figure out, one, what is the future of work? Is it a future of abundance? Is there going to be a massive series of job losses and displacements? There's all these different scenarios, and the reality is no one really knows for sure, but the best way, and of course, um, Eric coming from DARPA, and, and I, I subscribe very much to DARPA as well, the best way to create the future, the best way to guess as to what the future is going to be is to create it. I think it's going to require people that start thinking about how the last two to three year, decades, we focused on technologies that empowered individuals. What we really need to do for the next five years on to make this so that it's not just an academic conversation, Michael, that it is real, that it is translating ideals into action, are technologies that uplift individuals and communities, which we've not really done a lot of. In fact, if anything, technologies have sort of polarized communities. And when I think about the future of work, we talked about, one, how you can make sure that it's not disadvantaging any one group. The other question is, do you have a right to know if an organization is using what you're doing to train the machine with the end goal of displacing you? Uh, we know this has already happened in some cases with certain salespeople where their motions have been trained to the machine. Did they have the right to know? Uh, does the organization have a responsibility that if you are going to be displaced from that job, that then they help you retrain for another job? What's the social contract? These are all questions that will only be addressed if we start having the conversations now. And yes, they may sound idealistic. However, we are the Calvary. No one else is coming. And so for our salon and other, other people on social media, start having the conversations and seeing what you can do to help contribute positively to this. I really like that. Um, and to keep the, the illusions going, um, allusions, um, as Henry V said to Kate, we are the makers of fashion, right? We are right now in a period of time where we can shape how this is going to go. Um, I like the reference to a social contract. You know, Rousseau had some strong thoughts about what an obligation a state has to its citizenry and what the citizenry has to the state. Um, there's a place called the Institute for State Effectiveness in DC, um, originally formed by Ashraf Ghani and Claire Lockhart, where they listed out 10, in a book called Fail Fixing Failed States, they listed out 10 obligations of a state to its citizens. And they kind of apologize that there's not nine or 11. It looks like they just kind of were lazy and rounded up. But there's 10. Mm -hmm. um, one of those, for example, is the state has a monopoly on violence. Um, you can't have militias. You can't have people beating each other up for no reason. The state has a must have a monopoly on violence. How is that implemented in the face of AI? How is that implemented in the workplace? What constitutes violence when somebody has control over the things that you see every day? Right? The feeds that are tailored to what you like, the things that cause the clicks that get the advertising dollars, those may not be the healthiest things for you. And we don't have, in, in the great conversation, we don't have any reasoned debate or any enlightened compromise over somebody, for example, like Alex Jones. Right? This is, these are not level playing fields. And this is, I think, directly relevant to the future of work and how citizens respond to the, or employees respond to their workplace. 
We have another question from Twitter. What an amazing conversation uh, that's going on. You can join in and ask your questions using, using the hashtag CXOTalk. And we have another question for uh, Dr. Eric Rasmussen. How, could, how can AI techniques affect disaster response or the delivery of disaster services, and what are the ethical concerns associated with that? Great question, um, and one that we kind of wrestle with now on a monthly basis. Um, there are entities um, at the UN, within the donor agencies, within the bilateral um, agencies that look at how response teams are constructed. We try to do that by estimating the damage likely to have been done to a population by a given event, a flood, a cyclone, an earthquake, a volcano. Um, that takes a lot of before-the-event data, understanding the vulnerabilities and the risk mitigation strategies that might be available to a population at risk. That's a big field. There are a lot of people studying that. That's becoming a data-rich field, and so the algorithms that are being drawn around that pre-understanding of vulnerability are getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Now, they're doing that in part because they're collecting a great, more, great deal more data from those populations that are at risk. The populations may not actually know that data is being collected. The teams may not know why they're being assigned, where they're being assigned um, after an event because the teams have no visibility on how those algorithms were run. This is a complicated set of questions. The actual logistics of delivery of aid after an event, that's also another strong AI direction that people are looking at quite carefully because it turns out it's very effective when you can look at a lot of information where you've never had that capability before. You now have the ability to make some decisions that might be considerably more robust than anything you've been able to do before, which is more efficient use of donor dollars, less team fatigue, more effective political um, positioning for the population you're helping, less social unrest as a result of the long-term consequences of the event, and so forth. David, what are the, can we say, practical implications of all of this for, for companies, for employers, for workers, for policymakers? Maybe just take a, another very complex set of issues, but maybe just take a stab at unfolding that onion for us. Sure. And and I and I and I'm glad you raised the question of practical because I think it's one of these things where we need to have the conversations that go deep, and then we have to also say we also recognize that the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. So what is a single step or two that organizations can do? And so I want to recommend if you can visualize a two by two table, and at the top left hand corner of that table. What you're basically putting out is what do you perceive are your obligations in the context of using any new technology? In this case, it's AI and machine learning. What do you perceive as your obligations? And just put them in simple bullets. Ideally, it's no more than half a page. Then to the right of that, still on the top, put forward what are the things that you either consider to be blind spots, known unknowns, potential biases, as Eric recommended, things that you, you recognize you don't necessarily know or you can't know right now, but you may have concerns that maybe you can't see everything and have complete visibility about the situation when you're rolling out that technology. 
So now you've spelled out both your obligations and you are now aware of potential blind spots. Now you want to think about your responsibilities. So right below the obligations, spell out those things you're now going to do in response to those obligations. What are proactive steps? And then underneath the blind spots and the biases, spell out the safeguards, spell out the things that you're going to do. For example, maybe you're rolling out a new technology that's going to help people when they walk on the street and they run across a colleague that they haven't seen in three years, the AI will tip and cue you and say, ah, this is Bob. Bob has a wife named Jane. They have two kids. You know him from this connection of this company. And the last time you saw him was six months ago. And it tips and cues you. And that's very helpful. But recognize that that same technology that could help you do that could also unfortunately be used for either terrorist or criminal activities in terms of who to target. In fact, if that sounds hypothetical, unfortunately, social media, GPS, and web searches were used in the Mumbai terrorist attacks to figure out how to plan them and how to execute people. So it's not a hypothetical exercise, but I raise that because practically what you've spelled out in a very simple form are what do you perceive that are your obligations? What are you aware that you don't know? What are then your responses to those obligations? And what are your safeguards? And your safeguards might be having a group that can be early warning if your technology or AI is being used in ways you didn't plan for. Could be inside the company, could be a combination of people in the company and the outside. Something like that would be a very practical way to at least be a learning organization as you roll out a new technology. Eric, your thoughts on on these practical applications, and and I really did like the the kind of ethical framework for action that David just laid out. I like it too. It's one of the reasons we're friends. Um, the uh, it's good to recognize that over the past long centuries, we've wrestled with these things. This, these have been topics that have been shaping how we choose to work with each other and become a society where you can trust the behavior of the other person next to you, that everyone is kind of adherent to the rule of law, that there is the ability to optimize your life in the way that you see fit with significant freedom of action. A lot of that has changed over the years. There's much less violence than there used to be, despite headlines, and there's good evidence for that, and most of us have read at least some part of Pinker's book. Um, it is clear that an ethical framework is already something we consider very important in the way that we go about our lives and the way that we shape our institutions. How we incorporate that ethical framework, how we understand what AI ought to be able to do for us and the constraints around those decisions is something that is worth attention right now in a very practical way. But what about Facebook? You know, where does Facebook fit into all of this? This, I mean, you, I love you guys because you're such idealistic thinkers. But as David said, you know, the tool can be used for good, for evil. And the definition of good or evil is all in perception. Because I think Mark Zuckerberg, you know, he feels that he's doing a great thing for society. And he's certainly doing a great thing for Facebook. Well, so I, I, without going specifically to that one company, because I don't want to necessarily pick on any one company, I would say never, never, never at least remove the ability for individuals and organizations to learn from experiences. Uh, you know, we, we talk about how we want to have the culture of doing experiments and gaining insights from those experiments and pivoting because there is no textbook for where we're going. Maybe there's enough pressure now for an organization to be a learning organization and incorporate some of these things. 
And then the other thing is actually, I, I once heard an adage, and, and I try to incorporate it to this day, which is never ascribe to malevolence that which can be explained by ignorance. And it may just be, these are just simply, these were things that were not thought of that are now presenting themselves. Maybe the response has been flat-footed, but give the people a chance to redeem themselves, the organization a chance to redeem themselves, and, and if they don't, then, then hold them accountable. But 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 if we if we remove the ability for anyone to be learning, don't be surprised if no one sticks their neck out and says, look, this is hard, but I'm going to try and be idealistic and tackle it. I completely agree with that. The um, I have been a CEO for both for-profit and non-profit organizations for about 10 years. Um, I have made some stupid errors um, in the course of those 10 years, and I have a fair number of people that would be happy to point them out to you for me. Um, the end result is that I learned. Um, it was very painful at the time, but I got better as a consequence. I got a lot of feedback. I collected information. People helped me think about these things. That kind of capacity is critically important, particularly when we introduce something that's likely to be far-ranging, society-changing, humanity-altering, as AI is going to be, has already been. And that's certainly true in other nations um, at the moment, even more aggressively than it is here. China, for example, has WeChat. Um, WeChat's on my phone. Um, I work in China quite a bit. Um, and I find WeChat indispensable to daily life in China. It makes things hugely convenient. I am aware that my data is being collected. I am aware that what I'm doing in the process of using WeChat with hundreds of millions of other Chinese is building stronger data dumps and allowing better pattern recognition, writing stronger algorithms. And those may be biased toward things that I do like or things that I do not like as the person that I am, a relatively progressive West Coast liberal that doesn't always agree with what China has to say. Um, it is clear, though, that there are by and large, really well-meaning people struggling with every aspect of this as they try to optimize a half a dozen factors. David, where are we going over the course of the next few years? And as AI becomes uh, more ingrained in society and therefore our understanding of the effects of AI become more sophisticated, Again, I'll use that term realistically. What do you think the impact will be on government policy, on business, on worker displacement, things like that, all these different perspectives? Well, <laughs> you want me to pull out my magic crystal ball and predict the future. Um, Eric and I, maybe we'll go off and play the stock market afterward. Hey, David, you're 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 the David Bray. I <laughs> <laughs> I'm just doing a caveat that if, if I could see the future clearly, I'd probably be in a different profession. But that said, I think where I think things are going is we're, 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 we're going to be learning a lot in a very intense period of time. And as Eric mentioned, some of those lessons are going to be painful. Some of these things are going to be learning only by doing and saying, oh, that didn't work. Let's go this direction or that wasn't right. Let me try this. The question is, one, do we have enough patience for that? And then two, are enough people assuming that we can aim for the ideal, and maybe we don't get to the ideal perfectly, but if we just give up and say, look, it is what it's going to be, then I think we relinquish ourselves to a future that is going to be tyranny by AI in which we no longer have the machines benefiting us, 
but we are serving the machines. And Eric mentioned there is a example in which in a certain country that is already being done to a degree where what people are doing is optimizing not just their lives, but optimizing the society. Um, it may have some biases in it. It may be things that right now people are okay with because it makes their lives good enough that even if they've lost some locus of choice and freedom, they're okay with that. Um, I have to admit, like Eric, my own bias coming from the United States, and that is a bias, I believe that we should still have the ability to make choices and have freedoms as to how we live our lives within the construct of we are in a larger community, a larger society. I have not seen AI examples of where AI can be done to amplify human choice and autonomy in societies. And if we don't start doing experiments like that now, I think we run the risk that, yes, the future is going to be favoring more autocracies, less individual choices, the illusion of freedom, but in fact, the machine is really making a lot of the choices and possibly subjugations of certain groups if we don't stand up and say that's not right, that is not the vision in which we hold dear to the human spirit is important, human rights are important, and in this digital future going forward, we need to not only preserve human rights, but actually amplify them for everybody. I completely agree again. Um, and we have some interesting documents that have been tried over the years to help shape that discussion. Um, coming up on December 10th, there's going to be an event in San Jose at the Fairmont um, where we are going to look at our digital future. And one of the reasons we're doing it then is because it's the 70th anniversary of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And that declaration was built 1946-1947 during a period of time when most of Europe and much of Asia was in ashes. There was still smoking ruins all over Germany. There were still human ashes in the ovens at Treblinka. Um, they had already looked carefully at the consequences of unconstrained government um, and as a consequence of those lack of constraints or those biases or those misleading statements or that propaganda, there were choices made that are unthinkable, I hope, um, in the modern world, but didn't seem unthinkable at the time, and that's an important object lesson. Um, we need involved in this discussion of AI and the ethics of AI legislators, and we need academics, we need courts, we need the users, we need the platforms themselves to reach out with everybody's input and sort these things out carefully, using history as a guide, recognizing that AI is a special case of a general problem, and we should not lose track of that. We have been wrestling with these issues for a long time. We should simply apply the good thinking we've had before to the special case we have here. I want to uh, just mention that Eric Anderson on Twitter, in response to the point about there should be a social contract that controls everyday interactions with AI systems, he says, and that's why IBM has published a book or a statement called Everyday Ethics for Artificial Intelligence, which you can, and he gives a link. So you can go on Twitter, hashtag CXOTalk, and you can find that if you're interested in. So as we come to a close, I'd like to ask each of you to provide advice. And there are so many different stakeholder groups that I'll just leave it to each of you to decide which stakeholder groups you would like to offer suggestions or advice to. and 
here's your opportunity to write the future as, as you see it for these, for these folks. Uh, who wants to start? David, how about let's start with you? All right. Well, first, if I could just real quick give a amplification and foot stomp to what Eric just said. I mean, he, he was when he gave his bio at the beginning, he didn't mention that he, I mean, he mentioned he was with the Navy, but he didn't mention that he's been in Iraq. Uh, I myself, I've been in Afghanistan, though as a civilian on Secretary of Defense travel orders. We may sound idealistic, but we've also seen conflict and we've seen what happens when humans reach disagreements and, and the dark side of humanity, to be honest, which is, which is why efforts are done, which say, you know, basically prepare for war and hope for peace. We hope that what we're going in this new era is an era in which we, 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 we have the ideals, but we recognize that humans are humans and there may be things along the way that we want to try and avoid. And, and obviously World War II, we don't want to see another future world war or anything like that in which people are treated badly and subjugated, etc. I share that though, because who I want to speak to are two groups. First, to everybody that's looking for someone else to solve this, that's learned helplessness. No one else is going to solve it. I mean, we have to step up and do it ourselves. It's, 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 you know, if all you thought you did was you got angry at an issue or you got upset or fearful at an issue, all you did was release emotion. Nothing happened. So all of us can step up and do something, even if it's a small level, talking about this with others, raising awareness within communities, or standing up and saying, we believe in the sanctity of the human spirit of human rights in this digital era, and we want it preserved. The other group I want to talk to, though, are those individuals with the resources to help shape that future, whether they be CEOs, whether they possibly be grants, although I personally don't see the public sector as being much of a funding in this effort as it is the private sector now. But those CEOs that are willing to take the leap of faith and invest in community efforts and solutions that uplift people, and yes, you're accountable to your stakeholders and you have to make a profit for them. But if you can think beyond just your own profits for the organization and think about communities, you can help shape and empower those people that are willing to step out and say, we want a better future. And together, again, we can all be that Calvary going forward. Okay. And Eric, looks like very quickly, you're going to have the, the last word here. All right. I'll try to be very quick. I want to speak to three. Uh, number one is the State Department. Uh, the State Department has as its... Um, implementation requirement, the need to affect U.S. foreign policy around the world. If they can do that in concert with the Department of Defense using AI for those pro-social actions that calm people down, that give them the things that they need, that reduce the level of social unrest, that reduce resource shortfalls, um, we're likely to find that we can have a calmer world than we might otherwise. Um, I am working with the Pentagon on some aspects of AI that are looking at the pro-social opportunities that are out there, and I think that ought to be emphasized. Also pro-social, um, I'm a physician. I'm a clinical doctor. I'm a professor of medicine at UW. I was chairman of a department of medicine. I've done a lot of medicine over the years. As David mentioned, I had three tours in Bosnia. I did two tours in Afghanistan. I spent nine months in Iraq. Um, out of that, I saw a lot of misery. If there is the possibility that something can help me do better for my patients, then I think that we as physicians ought to jump on that the way we always have. We really have looked carefully at how we can gain advantages from inventions and creativity and done better for people. We don't have diphtheria much anymore. We don't have tetanus much anymore. We don't have polio much anymore. Vaccines really do work. We have evacuation 
routines, logistical protocols for getting the wounded off a battlefield that save a lot of lives, save a lot of limbs, save a lot of eyes that used to be lost in earlier wars. We have had good things happen in medicine and AI, I think, can leap us forward rapidly, and that's already happening. Um, the last one is teachers. The I mentioned education earlier in the hour. I want to re-emphasize the fact that individualized education is a real thing. It's happening in other countries. It's proving extremely beneficial, and we will do better as a society with a better educated citizenry. I'll stop there. All right. Wow. Uh, this has certainly been a very, very packed and fast-moving discussion. I sure wish that we had more time today. You have been watching AI Ethics and the Future of Work on episode number 318 of CXO Talk. Our two genuinely extraordinary guests have been Dr. Eric Rasmussen, and who, Dr. Eric Rasmussen, MD, and Dr. David Bray, PhD. So we got a lot of brain power in the house. Uh, Eric, thank you. This is your first time on CXO Talk, and thank you so much for, for being here with us today. Thank you for the opportunity. And David, you've been here before, and thank you for, for coming back and sharing your wisdom and experience with us. Thank you, Michael, and really enjoyed the insights you shared, Eric. Everybody, subscribe on YouTube and tell your friends to watch CXO Talk. That really helps us a lot. Please do that. Do it right now. Thanks, everybody. Go to CXOTalk.com. We have lots and lots and lots of great videos and more shows coming up. Thanks so much. Have a great day, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.